Welcome to Apostolic Life in the 21st Century, a podcast dedicated to helping modern-day believers live out the teachings of the first century church. This podcast is part of the teaching ministry of Dr. David K. Bernard. Dr. Bernard has dedicated his life to studying the Bible and helping believers apply its message to their daily lives. In Apostolic Life in the 21st Century, Dr. Bernard answers your questions about what the Bible teaches and how those teachings apply to everyday life. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast. There's some debate surrounding an event that many Christians refer to as the rapture. Now, critics like to point out that that word does not actually appear in the Bible. And other critics like to say or argue that the modern idea of the rapture originated in the 1800s with John Nelson Darby and then was made widely popular through the Schofield Reference Bible. What does the Bible actually say about the rapture? And if that is a biblical idea, does it give us any indication of when the rapture might take place? The word rapture is not in the King James Version of the Bible. It's from a Latin word meaning to be caught up. And certainly the concept of being caught up is in the Bible. I'd like to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, beginning in verse 15 through verse 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So here we here clearly have the term caught up. So if we prefer, we can say the catching away of the saints. But we use the rapture, the word rapture is a shorthand way of saying the catching away of the saints. So is the catching away of the saints a biblical concept? Absolutely. You see it right here in the scripture. I'd like to also read another passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 through 52. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So both of these passages tell us the Lord is going to come and those who are dead in Christ will rise. Those who are alive will not die, but will be transformed from mortal to immortal and will be joined so that the living and dead of the saved of all the ages will arise together to meet the Lord in the air. That's the catching away of the saints. That's very biblical, and we should teach it. Now, the references to that you quoted of it being a later uh, invention, this mainly has to deal with the timing. So if you read throughout church history, um, in the early centuries, most people believed in the pre-millennial return of the Lord. In other words, the millennium is when Jesus Christ establishes his kingdom on earth for a thousand years, Revelation chapter 20. And most people in the early centuries, at least, believed the Lord would come back to earth before that to establish his kingdom. That's in Revelation 19. So if you take Revelation as basically chronological, you see the Lord returned to earth in chapter 19. You see him setting up his kingdom on earth in chapter 20, and then you see the last judgment. In chapter 21 and 22, you see the eternal state, heaven for the righteous and the lake of fire for the unrighteous. So most people had that concept, but then exactly 
when would the saints be caught up to meet the Lord? If he's coming back to earth, are, just, are they going to be caught up to meet the air and then immediately reverse and come back down? Or is there a separation of time? And so there evolved three different views, the pre-tribulation rapture, the mid-tribulation rapture, and the post-tribulation rapture. And the, these all refer to a time of tribulation on earth, great suffering. Uh, the tribulation, you see this in Revelation chapter 5 through chapter 18, where it seems, first of all, an evil ruler will gain control over much of the earth called the beast. We often call him from other scriptures, the Antichrist. And so it seems that the, that God is going to let humans do what they always wanted to do. Okay, you can be in control of the world. You can implement your policies. You can do whatever you want. And instead of it leading to great peace and prosperity, it leads to great judgment. And then at some point, God will begin to send divine judgment on people. And so that's this time of tribulation, great tribulation. So the thought, one thought would be, okay, the church has to go through all that. And then the Lord comes back in chapter 19 and the people rise in the air and meet him and immediately come back. But then there's a thought, well, the Lord will let the saints go through the wrath of humans as the Antichrist is sitting in his kingdom. But in the middle, when God starts to provide his judgment, he will take his church out. That's the mid-tribulation rapture. And then the pre-tribulation is before all this judgment on earth, before the Antichrist is able to take full control, then God is going to rapture his church. And so then they will have usually the idea of seven years during the great uh, tribulation on earth. The saints will be in heaven. They'll have the marriage supper of the Lamb. They'll receive the rewards that are alluded to in 1 Corinthians 3. And then when this time for the tribulation ends, they will return with the Lord. And so under this scenario, what we think of as the coming of the Lord has two phases. The first part, people go up in the rapture, the, the saved. And the second part, Jesus comes with his saints back to earth. And that's the actual coming to earth. But the whole period is a seven-year period where the Lord comes in the air to get his saints. And then he comes back to earth to establish his kingdom. So that becomes an exegetical question. By that, I mean, it's just a matter of what does the Bible say? Now, if you read the synoptic gospels, which talk about this time, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it basically focuses on the time of tribulation. And Luke especially emphasizes the initial persecution before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But that prefigures the greater tribulation in the end of time. If you just read uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you there's not a clear statement of the rapture. And so many people just say, well, post-tribulationism. But if you read the writings of Paul, you have some indication, some pretty strong indication that the rapture will take place first. Now, historically, at the beginning of the Pentecostal movement, the modern Pentecostal movement of the 20th century, the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture was a strong motivator for the Pentecostal movement because people are feeling the Lord is coming soon. They begin praying, seeking, wanting to get ready. And that's part of the reason why there was a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then after the outpouring of the Spirit, 
they thought, well, this is this is going to be uh, in the last days. Joel 2 quoted by Peter in Acts 2 in the last days says, God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. There'll be a former rain and a latter rain. So people begin to think, well, these are the last days. The Lord is coming soon. And so there's an idea the rapture could take place at any time. The early Pentecostals, and this is interesting, both Trinitarian and oneness, even though they came out of Christian groups that said you're saved at repentance and the Trinitarians maintained that, but even the Trinitarians said, but if you want to go in the rapture, you must be filled with the Holy Ghost. And so a big impetus of the early Pentecostal movement was the coming of the Lord and receiving the Holy Ghost to go up in the rapture. So historically, most Pentecostals have believed in a pre-tribulation rapture. Today, uh, the United Pentecostal Church International allows diversity of those three views of the rapture. We are pre-millennial. The Lord is coming back to set up his kingdom, but it's in your personal choice to decide what you think the scripture says as far as the timing of the rapture. I would say historically and even today, probably a strong majority of our ministers would, would believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. So why is that? Is that justifiable? Well, if you look at it, there are several passages that indicate this. The very book of First Thessalonians that gives us a clear statement of the rapture in chapter 4, in First Thessalonians 5, Nine, it says the Lord has not appointed us to wrath. So the indication is he will take us out before this time of wrath, the seven years of tribulation. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 through 8, uh, apparently uh, when the Thessalonian believers got 1 Thessalonians, some of them were panicking and some even began to say, well, the Lord already came. So Paul wrote the second letter saying, no, he hasn't come yet. Uh, there, before he comes, this man of sin, which again, we often call the Antichrist, has to be revealed. He is going to deceive people. So you don't have to worry that you're in the millennial kingdom, that Jesus Christ is ruling all earth somewhere and you don't know it. Because before that's going to happen, this man of sin has to be revealed. And before he is revealed, there's a restraining force that has to be taken away. And so... 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 8 says, basically, I'm going to paraphrase in modern English, he who is now restraining the Antichrist will keep restraining him until he is taken out of the way. And then that man of sin will be revealed. And then after that, the Lord will come in judgment. Well, who is the restraining force? It doesn't say, but you can make a very strong case based on the whole discussion of Thessalonians that it's the church. Or maybe, since it uses the term he, the Holy Spirit in the church. That when all the spirit-filled believers are taken out of earth, then although God's spirit is still everywhere, his active presence in the church is no longer in the world, then the Antichrist will have free reign. There will be no spirit-filled believers to block him or to pray against him or to evangelize, and so he'll have free reign. And so that is another strong reason. Then if you go to Luke which although I said the Gospels aren't very clear in identifying a specific rapture, Luke 21, 28 is another good indication. It talks about all the evils that are coming in the end time. And it says, when all these things begin to come to pass, look up for your redemption draweth nigh. So that's an indication even in the synoptics that the church is not going to have to go through all the tribulation 
That's the main focus of, of those prophetic statements, but the church will escape. And maybe the reason why the synoptic gospel spent so much time, that was before the day of Pentecost, Jesus was answering the question of uh, his disciples who were Jewish, and they were thinking in terms of the Jewish nation and the reestablishment of the Jewish kingdom, which will be in the millennium. And so Jesus gave most of the information related to the tribulation and his coming to earth and establishing the kingdom because it wasn't yet time to really talk. They didn't really understand how the church would intervene and the Holy Spirit would come and so forth. Whereas by the writings of the epistles, you do have the, it's already Pentecost has taken place. The Holy Spirit's poured out. The church is coming to the forefront. Uh, and then finally, if you look at the book of Revelation, if you take it as basically chronological, then you would indicate a rapture coming before the tribulation. So chapter one reveals Jesus Christ. And then he and then he says in Revelation 119, he says to John, write the things which you've seen, which was his encounter with Jesus, the things which are and the things which shall be. So it, if you take that as an outline of Revelation, it indicates there's a chronology. First, the revelation of Jesus in chapter one, chapters two and three. Jesus dictated letters to seven churches of Asia Minor. They were actual churches at that time. I think most people would say they were picked because in some way they're representative of typical churches or some think they're ages of church history, but at least they're relevant churches for, for all of us. So chapters two and three then would be focusing on the present church age. And then right after that, chapter four, John says, I was caught up in the spirit. I was caught up into heaven. And in heaven, he saw 24 elders around the throne worshiping God, thanking God that they're redeemed from every nation. And I think the 24 probably signifies that the 12 tribes of Israel would represent Old Testament saints. 12 apostles would represent New Testament saints. So I think maybe the 24 is a symbolic way of including the saints of all the ages. If that's so, then in chapter four, you have the saints of all the ages worshiping God in heaven. Then in chapter five, you have the introduction of this evil ruler, the Antichrist. And five through 19, you have the time of tribulation. In 19, Jesus coming back to earth, as I've already stated, in chapter 20, the millennial kingdom. So if you take that as chronological, the saints are all in heaven worshiping God and having the marriage supper of the Lamb while there's the tribulation on earth. And of course, there still are going to be some people saved during the tribulation. Um, but from that chronology, it would appear that the teaching of the timing of the pre-tribulation rapture is correct. Now, I would simply end by saying, you look at all the passages that I've told you about, as well as others, the signs of the time indicate the Lord is coming near. How near? We can't say. Even in the first century, Paul expected the Lord can come in his day. At the beginning of the Pentecostal movement, the, the early Pentecostals expect the Lord to come in their day. It hasn't happened yet. But were they wrong to think that? Not really, because I think God wants people of every age to expect his coming. But looking at it objectively, we've never faced a time in human history like this where Satan is attacking the very foundation of God's original creation. So look at it. He's attacked the family. He's attacked the institution of marriage. Going, That's Genesis 2. Now he's attacking the very identity of humans as being exclusively male or female. That's going back to Genesis 1. So the devil is attacking the very fundamentals of God's original creative plan. 
And humans are talking about cloning. They're talking about genetic uh, modification. They're talking about playing God as never before. And with abortion on one end and euthanasia on the other, it seems that more and more people are intruding into areas that should belong only to God. When people started opposing God's will in Genesis, the Tower of Babel, they tried to build a tower to heaven to evade God's plan and God's judgment. God brought down judgment. So how long will God wait before he brings judgment? I don't see how it can be very long. So I don't know if it's this year, next year, or in my lifetime, but I do believe the Lord is coming soon. And whatever we believe about the rapture, I think we need to be ready for the coming of the Lord. Thank you for listening to this episode of Apostolic Life in the 21st Century. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We also appreciate it when you share Apostolic Life in the 21st Century with a friend or family member. Finally, join us again next time as we look at how the Bible applies to everyday life.